Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling at one with nature. I Ooh. am super relaxed and super inspired. And today's episode is a very special one. And it's brought to you by the Recharge in Nature Project, which is a three-year partnership between BMW and National Parks UK. And their shared aim is to enhance the electric car charging network and support locally delivered conservation, biodiversity and nature restoration initiatives across all 15 national parks. That's right. And we're going to be joined by an incredible guest today. Uh, We're not going to say their name just yet, but we'll be exploring how nature, natural landscapes and sustainability have informed this artist's work. And today's guest is a Margate resident as well. And I actually met them when I first moved here. And they've helped me realise that this is such a wonderful place to slow down and get out of the city. And it's actually quite parallel to what's going on with the national parks, because they are a great place to connect with nature. You know, here in Margate, we've obviously got the sea and our guest makes work out of walks that they do and even like beach combing but on an emotional level and a spiritual kind of level it's amazing to get back into nature and um, I'm looking forward to exploring the national parks myself actually they sound like they're the perfect place to recharge so we would like to welcome to talk art Hannah Hannah hi Hannah Hey, thank you. Feels weird to you guys saying my name in that way. <laughs> it's like a game show. <laughs> it's like when I first heard French people go, ah, Annalise. And it was like, oof, that's, that's a bit. Oh, that's really? Odd. They called you Annalise yeah, instead Annalise. of Hannalise? Yeah, Annalise. Oh. Thank you both for you. Thank you for inviting me. Finally. God, it took time, didn't you? Yes, big, big fans yeah. here, Hannah. And you are in Margate and you yep. were there before the masses, before all the other artists kind of like pummeled down there and bought up the rest of the rest of Margate. You've been down there since the beginning. So what what was it about Margate? Why Margate? Was it, you know, the big expanse of sky and the beach and everything? Was that the big pool? This this could be a whole talk episode. I was talking to someone about this and saying like this it does feel a bit like an epic conversation. But I'm like technically I was born in Margate. It's on my passport. But my parents lived in a small village between Dealing Sandwich. It was called Worth. So maybe about like, I don't know, 20 minutes or something from Margate. Um, it was kind of just a complication. And then when I was about two and a half, they moved to Canterbury. So I'm, I'm a Kent girl. I'm an East Kent girl, but I'm a Canterbury girl. And then it wasn't until pretty much I met Jack, my husband, Jack Lavender, who's also an amazing artist. And he was his parents lived in Minnis Bay, which was just round from Margate. And I remember my parents making this joke like, oh, you're, you're dating a guy from Thanet. The good guy from the island. Like it was something that was just like, I've had my bit of rough or something. And then it wasn't until I'd finished my BA degree and I didn't get onto my master's choice to move to London, ended up staying in Kent and thought, well, maybe I'll just get a studio and I'll just like stay in Kent and just make work and reapply next year. And then someone told me there were these studios in Margate. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll just have a look at them ended up taking a studio and ended up staying there for like three years while Jack was still finishing his degree you know it felt like kind of like prospector town or something like it was a lot of people here but like it always felt too early like there was a lot of opportunities but it was like people would sort of open up something would happen and then it would just go they'd go oh no too early gonna you know go somewhere else gonna go to Brighton Mm. or we're gonna go Mm -hmm. to like somewhere else and we always kind of felt that and we had a few friends who were like a slightly older generation who had been in London already had moved to the coast to kind of have a more quieter life and they were all like you know what you, you've just got to go to London like don't don't do post here go to London do the London thing and then see if you want to come back so we did that for about six seven years and then I never thought I would come back like in all honestly I, I never thought I would come back I thought oh no Margaret's never going to happen like it's just everyone's too early it's always going to be this thing and then I got the show at Turner Contemporary that was a collaboration with the British Museum. And it was like from about April to October, it was a really long, really long process. And I was back and forth and I was here over the summer and staying with Jack's parents. And we were kind of thinking about tentatively about leaving London. And there was one day that we were, it was like a Sunday and both me and Jack were sitting on the front outside like a bar. And it was like the sunset and we were drinking beer and we were both just like, why why are we getting on that train like why are we going back 
Like, why are we leaving this? Like, what, you know, we're just going to go back to our tiny little flat in this area in London that's getting more and more gentrified that we're going to get priced out of doing like, you know, having the wrong life balance, basically having like a massive studio and a tiny flat and just feeling like we're not, not living a, a normal life, basically. And so, yeah, we just sort of decided to start house hunting. And then our house we bought was like the third house we looked at. It's insane. Wow. I mean, also, I've got to like remind you, Margate was dirt cheap. Like it was one of the cheapest places to live. That was one of the massive incentives as well. Our family were close by, so we were thinking about having a kid anyway. And it was cheap. It was really yeah. cheap. I always remember coming to yours for tea and having really like lovely chats in your kitchen and <laughs> yeah. and, and when I, every time I left I was always like oh I wish I wasn't going back because <laughs> I really liked how much Margate even before I lived here it, I would go on long walks and it kind of did slow down the way because in London I was just so manic and I guess I'm still quite um, full on now because we're constantly working and stuff but I do like that that it slows you down here. How do you think nature's informed your work and you like does does living so close to nature like impact the work you make I guess like I was quite fortunate with growing up because although Canterbury is a city like it's a tiny city like it's Mm. really small it's really close it's like half an hour or something to the to the coast to the beach Mm. there's Mm. a lot of kind of woodlands around there it's it's quite you know it's it's quite idyllic so I feel like I was always had access to kind of woodlands or you know to go to the beach um, so I always felt like it was kind of quite informed. There's quite a lot of farmland around there as well. So you always felt like it was, that was a part of your life in a way. It wasn't like living in a city, like, you know, the equivalent of like, I don't know, even though Birmingham is quite green, I guess, but some cities feel quite industrial. And I think mm. Canterbury doesn't, it doesn't feel like that. It feels kind of quite this tiny pocket in quite a green area. And Kent as a whole, like, apart from there's a lot of housing being built, obviously it's quite a green place. And also I think meeting Jack because he grew up by the sea, like we've been together for like years. So it was always a thing that we would go on beach walks. He was always very obsessed with like making these sort of temporary sculptures. And I was always very obsessed by picking up things. Like sea glass has been like a really big thing since I was really tiny. So that was always really interesting to me. And I guess like I was always quite interested in artists that like Arta Pavera artists or like the land artists and that kind of felt quite connected to the location that I was in as well, the, in the woodlands. My dad was quite interested in like on woodland walks. Um, and my mum like relocated to a really tiny village. It was like two buses a day. It was really bleak as a teenager. But it was like, you know, you're around woodlands and fields all the time. So I feel like that is it's the kind of there. I mean... I don't want to paint like a really rosy picture because I also have quite a bad shopping habit and I do enjoy like galleries and shops and bars and restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not just like this idyllic hippie that's just like floating around <laughs> in a field. Like that's nice. That's really nice having that. But I kind of like also having the realness as well. I do really like in your work the 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 way that you do sort of go to the beach and then find um, objects that then can be transformed. And for me, in in your tablet works, which are like these amazing kind of wall based three um, D sculptures, which which have and contain all of these different things that you might have found. Um, there's something so precious about it, about the kind of the transformation element for me. Yeah, I think like. I mean, I don't know if I was super aware of that early on. I remember this time when me, my dad took me to this beach, actually Joss Bay near Broadstairs when I was like mm. about six or seven. Um, and it was like a boiling hot day. I think it was like August or something. And like Joss Bay, if you've been there, like on a really good day, it feels like you're, you're abroad. It feels like the most amazing holiday ever. Like at age six or seven, I thought I was literally like on a tropical beach. <laughs> this is amazing and I remember seeing this woman who was picking up sea glass and she came up to me and my dad and she was like had this handful and she was like look I found all these crystals and my dad was just like yeah that's sea glass it's just bits of broken glass that have just gone in the sea and been rounded off and haven't got sharp edges and this woman's face she just was like so downcast and just dropped them and just walked off and I remember <laughs> thinking like harsh dad obviously so you know age six or seven it's a bit harsh but the thing that like really stayed with me was that I was almost more interested in that idea that something had undergone that change that it'd been floating around in the sea and been rounded and pummeled and had undergone that change from what it started off as rather than it wasn't a crystal I didn't think of it as like oh it's not 
it's not a commodity or it's not worth anything. It was more, it kind of kept that history, like that kind of, almost like it had a personal narrative. And I think also I'm quite interested in the idea of vibrancy and matter, that everything has this kind of life force or trace. I think kind of on a on a molecular level, like everything's carbon-based basically. So ultimately there's no difference between all matter on earth or our known universe, I guess. We're all carbon-based. Um, you know, obviously there's a big difference between me and this laptop, but at the same time, we're kind of composed of the same stuff on a molecular level. There's a really interesting book, actually, this guy, I think it's like Blanqui or Blanqui, who's a French philosopher, and he was kind of making this argument about this idea. It's called Journey to the Stars. He was incarcerated at the time, but he was kind of making this argument about the fact that we are all connected, we're all made of the same stuff. I mean, his mm. argument was kind of it was more about sort of socialism and about this idea of connectivity between people that overcome or that transcends class or social status. But also I think I'm kind of interested in the idea that matter is all we're all the same, basically. There's that connectivity between things. So I think like a lot of my interest in the tablet works, and I guess to a certain extent the rest of my work, is this idea of connectivity and something retaining something, like a life force or information. Actually, I just finished reading, sorry, I was just going to say, Russell, I know you want to say something, I'm just blabbing. I'm loving listening to you. Um, I just read Olivia Lang's book, Everybody. It took me ages to get around to reading it. Like Jack's, Jack's my hookup, basically. He's just like, you should read this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, and I'll get to it. And then about a year later, I finally do it. But I love the bit where she talks about this idea of a body um, having a sort of um, internal memory of the the experiences it's had and the kind of interactions it's had, like it kind of stores this information. And I really love that idea and was thinking about in my practice that I think a lot of my um, interest is in these this kind of different matter, almost having a similar thing that maybe it retains touch that it's had or it retains this kind of interaction it's had or it creates, it has a narrative of its own. I mean, ultimately, I'm kind of removing that when I put it in the load of plaster and embed it. That context is kind of gone. But I guess it's also maybe it's sort of cremating it in some way. I'm like entombing it. Yeah, but I also (laughs) feel like you're finding, I think you said this, finding the new potential to activate the objects that you choose. Like these objects, you're, you're, you're kind of raising the question, what is valued and what is discarded? And these things that you're picking up off the beach, which is kind of sustainability, you're, you're doing your own recycling in some way and you're giving them new life. But these things that have been discarded, other people have thrown them away and they've, they've washed up in the sea on the beach and then they've come to you and they've ended up with you. And to you, they're a treasure. They're something that you will find potentially and you will find magic in and they will then form part of your practice and appear in work. And then they will outlive all of us because all art is being made and they'll outlive all of us. And now you're giving new energy and life and a new narrative to these objects which otherwise would be overlooked. Yeah, I remember like two two things come to mind. Like the first one is when I was having the interview for Turner Contemporary and I was being interviewed by one of the curators from the British Museum. And at the time, I was collecting quite a lot of these clay pipes from the Thames River um, because I kind of liked that they almost, just the middle bits look almost literally like cigarette butts, you know, like those kind of what they call Vogue, you know, those white, very thin ones, um, which was kind of ironic that it's like this archaic smoking device and it ends up looking like a fag butt, but also just like beads because the bowl bit, of it's gone, that bit's gone, it's just become this kind of non-useful thing. And he said to me, like, oh, have you ever found the bowl bits, the pipe? And I was like, well, no, I wouldn't pick that up. I'd just be choosing the stem. And he said, well, that's because the bowl bit would tell you, give you some indication, basically, about the age of it or where it came from. And I was like, yeah, but that's your job. Like, as a historical curator, that's literally your job because that's what you would look for and that's what your role is. Whereas I feel like as an artist, my role is not about documenting or categorizing or trying to find like that specificity it's about almost creating this point of being a departure point a jumping off point of what could this be we we kind of have a rough idea of what this is but what about if we take the context away we take the removal of what we think it is and it becomes something else like what does it become then I guess there's a loss of information but then also I think there's a opening up of potential the other thing is when I first started making the tablet work, I would just choose sea glass. They were very minimal. There was only about maybe five pieces in them because I was very into 
this modernist church. Um, and you know the thing with modernist churches, like the kind of 50s ones, is where they have the stained glass. The stained glass is gone. It's just literally these kind of glass bricks. And we all know that it's stained glass because we've seen stained glass windows in churches. But if you're coming from that, from a completely fresh point of view, you had, you've never seen a stained glass, you'd be like, what's this weird, like, you know, random glass bricks in that wall? Like, what's that a signifier of? And that really stayed with me. And also, it was around the time that tablet media was coming out, if you can remember that, pre, pre-iPhones, right? Um, and I was really interested in the idea of using the most archaic term, like tablet media, for the most cutting-edge technology. And this idea of what this tablet media offered to us, this idea of storing information. But it's not really, like, you know, it's not really targeted as useful. And what most of us got on our phones is like an app and some crappy photos. It's not the important stuff. Most of us put that on our external hard drives or in other forms. It's, you know, it's a weird kind of thing we carry around that has stuff in it that we love. It becomes a nostalgic thing. Um, but it's, but the, I think my obsession with your work then is this archaeological excavation constantly that you're doing and it's this slowing down when I'm in front of your work it slows me down and I want to notice all these objects that you've considered that you've chosen and you've placed there's a reason your instinct has put them to you it's kind of like this fatalist thing like these objects are discarded nobody knows that they would end up in this artist's hands in 2023 and they would end up in a sculpture and, and this project you were talking about at the, the Turner Contemporary, um, this was called The Passage of Time. This was in 2022, and it was a commission that you had. And it was these clay pots or these clay, what were they? They were clay objects, vessels that you were inspired by to make Roman the show. Roman ware, Roman Samian ware. Yeah, it's like the IKEA 365 range for the Roman Empire, basically. <laughs> like really just like cheap disposable stuff they just shipped over for like the soldiers, really, and for people who moved here who started a new life. But yeah, the ship went, the ship went down and they, they float around. I mean, fishermen have been finding them for years. Also, a lot of them are in prime condition, perfect condition, because they were never used. So the ones that are kind of a little bit like battered or anything, that's happened afterwards. That's just sea erosion or that's kind of where oysters have formed on them or something. For me, this is just totally fascinating because through your work, it's ancient and modern, you know, through your work as a contemporary artist, I'm discovering the ancient past and and it's slowing me down and it's making me appreciate that. But part of this... Um, commission is that you had someone uh, curator I think the curator from the British Museum took you around to Roman sites of East Kent and he showed you these sites that <laughs> so you were visiting these areas and you were you know slowing down and and recognizing these vast like parts of the country these parts of land which you'd never considered before as having remains under them remains under our feet the amazing thing was um Sam Moorhead um, he was also the kind of the guy that instigated the show because he, I think his family lived near Ashford, but he had visited Turner Contemporary and he was sat, I think, in the Claw Learning Studio and he could see Recolver Towers from it. And he realised that there was this connection between the Samian Ware and this um, this site, the Recolver Towers. So he took me on this tour of like Richborough, Richborough Roman Forts, um, Recolver and Dover Castle. All of these I was familiar with from when I was young, obviously. Like, it's what your parents do, isn't it? Just drag you around some old piles of ruins. But the most interesting thing is Recolver, he was able to point out to me where they'd used, like, the beach sand as cement because they just had to just make this, like, really shonky cement where they just literally dig it up. So there's bits of shells and this sand they'd use in the cement was like, you know, they didn't bother refining it. They just chucked everything in. And then even there was elements where there was like a whole bust, like a, a figure that was just shoved in as ballast when they were building. So he was just pointing out all these things to me that were like, they'd literally just found what was available to them to just shove up. And I do think fundamentally a lot of what I do is about pragmatism as well. It's very much about being practical with what I have ready available to me. And then in a lot of ways, there's also this feeling that I feel like it's a gift from the gods, like I've been given something. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, a fatalist. It's ended yeah. up with you. Yeah, although also I do have Jack, 
he's kind of my he's like my sniffer dog on the beach <laughs> <laughs> and also jupiter although i do have to just like chuck things over my shoulder and go that's crap that's crap it's a good thing having an artist partner yeah sure. no definitely <laughs> and you know, a daughter who to... likes finding little bits and pieces for you yeah son, son. yeah son sorry oh that's fine don't worry he's like he just has no concept agenda he's two and a half true <laughs> they um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Russell was talking about slowing down and it made me remember when I saw you in a coffee shop here and you were hand weaving and kind of, um, you, you make a lot of textile works and you said to me something like, this is taking so long. And what is it like when you make those kind of works when it's like you have to really be, uh, committed in a way to the slowness of the making because it's all done like each thread at a time in a way. The weird thing is that that work that was for the Well Projects solo, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I started that work in 2018 when I was on oh. a residency in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Pivo, really amazing. It's in the Copan building in central Sao Paulo. Amazing residency. My friend Dan Coopy, who actually is a weaver, makes um, weaving works, amazing works. Oh, yeah. He'd done the residency and he said to me, like, we're good friends. And he was like, you have to apply to this residency. It was a partnership with Gasworks as well. So I ended up in Sao Paulo. And the weird thing is I took things with me that I thought I hadn't really figured out what to do with them yet. It was like stuff in the studio. You go, oh, I've kind of put that on the back burner. Maybe I'll come to that later. And I had this Hessian fabric that Jack actually persuaded me to buy. And I was just like, what am I going to do with that? And then while I was there, I kept finding this parcel string in shops. And it felt like, oh, maybe there's something in this. And I started dyeing it and then was like, oh, maybe I'll just start stitching into it. So, yeah, this work that I started in 2018 that was more just something just to play around with while I was in residency, I then continued for like four, no, three years, three, four years. Um, and also it was practical when I had Jupiter because like, yes. I had like barely any studio time and he would just like sleep. Um, or I, he did a lot of contact mapping actually which was fine I don't care but he would be literally on me or next to me so I like the sewing and the textile work really came into its own during that um also the show um I did in Lindsay's space Quench there was quite a lot of textile work in that as well because she offered me that show when Jupiter was like two months old mm. crazy isn't it like <laughs> thanks Lindsay but you're like who this does is that? Lindsay Mendick isn't it yeah yeah, yeah artist, Lindsay yeah. She was just like, oh, yeah, do this, you know, do this show. Got a two-month-old. It'll be great. I was just like, yeah, cool. Okay. Shit. And she gave me a long lead-up time, actually, in fairness. She gave me about a year, so I knew I had a lot of time to just be oh, that's right. methodically yeah, working yeah. through it. Has yeah. being a parent changed your work? I've been thinking about this a lot because a lot of people have been asking me that. And I think, I think it does. I think it would be, like, ridiculous for me to say, like, it hasn't. I think it, becoming a parent does change you emotionally change you physically obviously it changes your capacity to do things it changes your expectations of what you're able to achieve makes you more realistic in some ways brings you back down to earth I was literally just telling Rob about the situation I had earlier when I saw bumped into an old um, friend someone I studied with actually quite a well-known artist and Jupiter was sat on my lap and wet himself and then weed through into my trousers and I was like, oh, wow, nothing quite like a two-and-a-half-year-old to really just bring you back down to earth, you know, just to embarrass yeah. you. And every time you feel like, yeah, I'm kind of a bit swish, looking good, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to end up with food down me or something. But I think in terms Aww. of art making, it's sort of – it's enhanced the things that I felt were important that I was doing and made me almost want to be making work that feels not only more important, but I just – not I justify on whether it, I'm like proud of myself, but I feel like, oh, I want to just keep pushing myself, you know. I want to try and keep doing it. My time is quite poor. Studio time is quite low because I have to manage him as well. He starts 30 hours in September, thank God. But I have to try to juggle my time. So I feel like I'm kind of more proactive. I used to be quite a procrastinator, but I'm kind of a bit more like, okay, I've got studio time. I've got like two hours. I'm just going to be like getting on it and doing it. And anything I can fit around him, so the VHS videotape knitting becomes really handy because if he's got like a bit of time watching a tiny bit of TV, I'll be like quickly knitting. And also I feel like it's it's a weird thing where you kind of open up to like a, um, a whole new world of like mum friends and other children. 
I mean, I never really liked kids. I never really hung around with kids. And I'm hanging around with so many children now and so many mums as well. And you kind of feel this camaraderie. But the thing that I'm really aware of is, I guess, like how how different my relationships are now with people who are childless. And, you know, people who choose to be childless, obviously, and even people who, you know, who haven't chosen to be childless, it just hasn't happened for them. I'm so much more aware of my position that I'm like, um, you know, I'm quite, I'm very lucky, I'm fortunate that I have a child, but also thinking about how we are all kind of guardians in a sense, that idea of responsibility. I mean, a lot of it's me kind of being like, you know, fuck you, you have responsibility too, it's not just me. You can't be going out getting drunk every night. It's not just me. And also, like, another thing of also wanting to offer that to someone to go, like, you know, there's also, you know, just because society tells you that interspecies relationships don't exist, it doesn't mean that it they don't. Like, I know a lot of people who have cats and dogs who are literally their children. Mm-hmm. Of course they are, because 100%. you have that relationship. I mean, yeah. even, even just, like, on a really bonkers level, your gut microbiome, man, it's like half your brain's in there. I read something recently that was like serotonin production comes from your gut. Your gut literally makes you happy. Like no wonder chocolate. Oh yeah, I've been reading all that about what you eat and mental health and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then also feeling like, you know, when you eat kale or broccoli, you're just feeding the bacteria. You can't even digest it. It's for them to eat. And then they secrete enzymes and stuff that you absorb. It's literally like it's literally like you've got a farm inside you. Mm, that's so hot, <sighs> Hannah. Keep talking. Oh, sorry. What, um, so, so being being a parent, but then being part of a partnership of artists, and you sound like you're, you know, I know you're incredibly supportive in the way you talk about Jack. You have a, a synergy with each other's practice, and the people that come to Jack Lavender's work may see elements where there's a crossover, where Jack sort of has an archaeological feel for. Uh, pop culture in the way that like objects come into the practice that he's found discarded as well so you both have this do you ever fight over objects that you find on the beach and you're like that's for my work no that's for my work and what is it like being in a in a, a artist relationship I always think the funny thing with me and Jack is that if you if you didn't know us and if you'd never met us and you literally just put our work side by side it looks so so different <laughs> like his references are like very different to mine we have like a different handling of things even the way we install shows like our solo shows look so different but I think fundamentally our bookshelves are basically the same we read pretty much the same stuff I'll read a book I move over to his side he moves something he moves over to my side like we're always in a weird synergy with that we kind of watch quite a lot of the same stuff I mean some stuff I think is a bit crap that he watches and you know like you have the little bickering we're just like no it's rubbish I'm not doing that even like our music choice, like a lot of those are aligned as well. But I guess also we've been together so long. We were together, well, we first met when we were like 19 at art school, actually, mm. on our foundation year. And then we had like that ridiculously long, just like, will they, won't they? They even got boring. This was at Chelsea, was it? No, this was in Canterbury. Oh, right. We kind of had like a bit of a snog on like a residential trip in Barcelona. <laughs> And then I think we were so embarrassed and everyone was like, oh my God, do you like Jack? And everyone goes, oh my God, do you like Hannah? That we were just like, we never got it together. But obviously we liked each other. So we would just like chat, hang out. And then he just went AWOL. I moved to Bristol to start my, um, start the first term. And then for various reasons, I ended up transferring back to Canterbury. And then a flash forward about a year and I just like bump into Jack in the library. Like, where have you been? It was just like, yeah, no, just playing it cool. Just like, yeah, and no, I just took a bit of time out all right okay cool and they later found out he was trying to get into Camberwell but they were like no you've got to do a foundation year or you've got to just like finish your foundation year you can't you don't it's not going to happen so he'd end up coming back to finish it and then I guess we were in a weird situation where he was sort of doing foundation again and I was going to the final year of my degree so he used to just sort of come into my studio and just look at my books and just look at stuff and then just like piss off <laughs> just be like, all right, is that our relationship? And then that was that was his style. <laughs> and then yeah, eventually we got together. But I think we always were just it was always very aligned. Like I think not only do we I think we basically just talk a lot. I think we both find conversation just very, very stimulating. We could debate absolutely anything. And also it was kind of nice when you're sort of an art student and you've kind of got like 
this body as well. We joke about how we used to like get the train to London. We go and see like about eight or nine shows. And then we like run around London. Then we'd be on the train back to Kent and we're just like getting out all these press releases from like our rucksacks and looking at our little digital cameras at these tiny cruddy little photos and not remembering anything, but being like, yeah, but we saw everything, saw it all. I love that. Well, we were talking about these uh, tablets then. I'd like to just go a bit more into that. Um, You've been doing these for about seven or eight years now, I guess. And they're these plaster cast tablets you've called tablets, which become part of um, the ones that I have. They're made out of beehive honeycomb, but it's the frame that the honeycomb's in. The honeycomb's been removed, and then they have these uh, plaster uh, kind of fixtures in, and then you embed objects into them. And I, I think everyone listening needs to have a Hannah Lee's tablet in their <laughs> life on the wall because, they're, they're to me, they are just so beautiful and fascinating and elegant and yet rough and ready they this i find them so incredibly satisfying and they slow me down and they make me look at every time i look at them i'm like seeing something else or a different energy or a different mark that's been formed in the plaster drying or the way that the object sits in or the way the light hits it they're fantastic like i'm such a fan how did they come together why and why was it the beehive honeycomb that you came across so i guess the first ones i made it was like 2011 I was at Chelsea doing the postgrad there, this really bonkers course, actually, that was like a kind of half MA. Um, Simeon Barkley, who I bumped into recently, he witnessed me, uh, my toddler pissing on my leg. He was on the course, although I don't think he would put it on his CV because he went to Goldsmiths afterwards. Um, Ang Harrod Williams, really amazing artist as well. She's based in Berlin now, I think. She went to Pete's Wart. So she wouldn't mention it on her CV. And also Chelsea don't even want to talk about it. It was set up by Hilary Lloyd, actually, originally. Mm-hmm. And then Barbara But it's Harvey. on your CV. You're, you're proud of it. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it was like this really bonkers course. So it was about kind of breaking down what you kind of thought you knew your work was about, what you did, and then almost kind of starting again. I think I cried almost nearly every day. It was brutal. But Jack was at the RCA doing sculpture, like across the bridge in Battersea so I used to kind of cycle over to the RCA sculpture department as it was then and just have a nose around to see what people were doing and then we would take our bikes and we would cycle a bit further along it's kind of before Nine Elms got massively developed and go almost past um onto the beach the Thames there and walk around and pick up bits um and I remember he found this coconut but not like a kind of um, not like the classic coconut, shy coconut, like a sort of fresh coconut that had dried out in the Thames. And we were like, oh my God, where's this come from? Is this come all the way from like a tropical island? Like, what's it? And we're having this long conversation. And then we literally looked up the Thames and there was like New Covent Garden Market, where it's like a fruit and veg market. And we're like, oh, well, it's come from there, obviously. I laughed about it, but it stayed with me, that idea of the potential in it. And I think the Thames is such a incredible historical resource has amazing stuff coming up from it so I'd been thinking about this kind of plaster embedding thing so I started making a few tentatively um, and then started adding more and more things into them just to kind of experiment to see how far I could push it and then the beehive frame thing that came like a bit later where I'd bought a honeycomb frame because I just kind of was blown away that you could buy a whole frame of honey ate the honey and then had this frame and was like yeah something about this and I'd moved my studio into my house so my workplace had become my house the same way I guess a beehive is and I was thinking quite a lot about how these tablets had gone from being kind of very square and rectangular to becoming quite freeform and I almost wanted to take them back like almost kind of make them sort of regular and contained in some way to then sort of push off so then there was that kind of squaring off or like containment of them so that then any that I made that weren't in the beehive frame almost felt like they were kind of free to be a bit more odd, you know, be a bit more bigger or just stranger. Um, I also actually made some in coconuts. Um, yeah, the vessels um, and oyster shells. Yes, yes. I love they all feel so modernist. They all feel kind yeah, of like they timeless. They feel yeah, like they're so made funny. in the war. Or but they're I guess, made, I you guess know. that was the aesthetic that I was kind of like was inspired by. It was these kind of modernist churches, this kind of weird yeah. abstraction of something being reduced down and context gone and then becoming like these 
yeah it, also I think like that kind of Rosetta Stone thing or kind of cuneiform tablets the idea of it kind of having some idea of language like there's trying there's something was trying to be manifest or like written a narrative that's there or the language of some kind but it's not really decipherable I guess no you're giving stories to these objects that you find and by yeah. embedding them in you're creating this this language for them and obviously you know yeah, for you also like juxtapositions like putting them together yeah. it creates something like a new language conversation yeah. yeah but it's it's obviously nature for you is finding stuff in nature whether it is man-made crap that you end up finding and it becomes treasures to you or just the fact that you know nature itself and the history of a landscape and what we're walking on every day and when we go on these trips and we see these big you know vast scapes of land that we can go and visit they all inform your practice and that energy it feels like there's, there's there's big ideas within these contained objects of yours yeah I think um there's definitely like a sense for me that, yeah, I enjoy being outdoors. Obviously, I enjoy being out in nature. And also, I'm kind of acutely aware of how much I also enjoy other aspects and like that return. And I guess I've become more aware of the years have gone on of like noticing human impact, I guess. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to seem all preachy because I feel like David Attenborough is getting into trouble with that already. <laughs> but walking on the beach just like you're aware of plastic you know like I kind of feel like I get good karma because I'm picking up stuff that I don't want people to see the irony actually is in Margate there's quite a lot of beach cleaners people who voluntarily just go along and clean the beach and there's an amazing yeah, organization rise up clean up are amazing yeah. but I always know when they've done a beach clean because there's nothing <laughs> I'm just like oh fuck they've taken everything but you have to find and they're rules for yourself you have to find it on the beach like the bags of stuff that they've picked up can you rifle through them and happily take something or does it have to be this this actual dialogue with the object and where you found it for you to take it away I feel like that's the interest for me obviously is like I feel like it's about as close as you're going to get to a self-portrait for me really I'm not I'm not really a selfie person I'm not really like a self-portrait but I feel like the tablet works are about as close as you're going to get to me making a self-portrait. They're more mm. aligned to self-portraiture than they are to documentation because they're about my lived experience of a specific time in a specific place. I remember someone saying to me, it was so hilarious, they were like, you know what your work makes me think of? I'm just like, oh, here we go. It's like, you know when you're walking along and you've got a bit of chewing gum stuck to your shoe and it just picks up everything that you've walked along? And I was like, yeah, actually, that's the most simplistic description of what my work is, but kind of makes the most sense. Like, yeah, I feel like it's it's literally about my lived experience. I mean, it's funny. I've had a few friends that have gone like, oh, I collected some shells for you from the beach. And I'm like, oh, thanks. I'll just yeah, you put those. It isn't yeah, your, it isn't your yeah. narrative. They're, yeah. they're, they're projecting yeah. their own narrative onto your work. Yeah. yeah. I was looking at the website of the National Parks and it made me think about um, ramblers and like walks and how in art there's often been this thing of like the walk or the journey. or And I, I, I think I, that's really what I like is this idea of almost like Russ was saying, kind of archaeology. But you know when you stumble across, I don't know, like a rock that has a face in it or something? Because when I was a kid, I used to spend a lot of time in Wales. My family are all Welsh. And we went to like the Brecon Beacons in Snowdonia. And I, I literally remember coming back from all of those trips with a bag full of little um, things I'd found, like the stones or, or yeah, just different things you pick up even like the lids of um bottles you know those kind of metal lids that that people would like pop off before they were going to drink coca-cola bottles or old beer sort of that yeah yeah. yeah. you know what i mean but you would pick up and it becomes like this treasure Mm. um is there something about that walk for you that is an important part of the work i think the treasure thing just made me think about my dad's mum. my nan she's not with us anymore but she lived in canterbury and she was a big gardener And she was always like digging in the garden and finding stuff like oyster shells and Roman tiles and medieval rings. I love it. I love it. Like, you know, that constant thing. And it wasn't necessarily like I wanted to be like some child archaeologist. It was more just like being aware of just walking in the footsteps of other people, being being aware of being part of a, a linear journey, I guess. 
So I feel like that. I mean, Canterbury's quite big with archaeology, isn't it? There's quite a lot of old stuff under those pavements. Every time there's like southern yeah. water or a gas leak, it's like they find a new like amphitheater find, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, there's a real thing in <clears throat> the coast here where people are um, doing that thing with the detectors. Oh, metal, metal detecting, metal detectors, yeah, yeah. And that always makes me aware that there's something there. Yeah, yeah. Everyone seems to be really intensely doing it. Yeah. No, I th- yeah, I feel like there's something about that kind of being aware of following a trace or being aware there being traces underneath you um but i mm. also me and jack like he really got into um megaliths you know like standing stones a few years ago oh. so we yeah we kind of i sort of followed along with that and we've been to avebury and stonehenge um cold the cauldrons well. do you know about them i was talking to um ollie harrop amazing photographer uh, does Carl Friedman photographs, Lindsay Mendes, mine, it's amazing photographer. Mm. We were talking, We, you know, when you just like meet another rock person, basically, standing stone person. And we were talking about the Medway megaliths. So these are kind of somewhere kind of near, I, I guess, around like central Kent. There's like the cauldron stones in Kitscote. And I said, oh, you need to check out these ones because no one really knows about them. I think one's National Trust and one's English Heritage. But So I feel like, yeah, I've done quite a lot of the kind of ancient woodland, standing stones, long barrows, that kind of thing with Jack. Um, and, you know, like I was a big Richard Long fan, like when I was. Oh, were you? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know how, but like in my school library. So when I was doing like. A levels, GCSE A levels. They had a couple of Richard Long books. Um, I just recently gave a talk actually at um, University of Hertfordshire, and I was trying to explain like my first sense of being wanting to be an artist as a job. You know that being a specific thing, not just like liking drawing or painting. Going, hang on, this is a career choice, and I feel like it was um, a friend of mine. No, my one of my mum's friends. She has like a portrait by Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. And it's a woman painting a woman. And I grew up with this painting and being like, yeah, of course, women paint. That happens. Because obviously when you're little, it's like Monet, Van Gogh, it's all the big guys. So I was very aware of like women are artists. And then the other big love I had was Richard Long. But mostly because I would just look through this book and be like, this guy has literally the sickest job ever. He just goes on a holiday, goes on a walk, makes some cool land art, takes a photograph, it shows in a gallery and then he just goes off again on a nice little travel. I just thought there was one picture of where it's got his tent where he's done like a hike with a dog and he's made a stone circle next to a mountain. And I was like, this looks great. I want to do this. This, this is literally, I'm going to do this job. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. No, it's not so, ridiculous. No, it's amazing. amazing. How empowering. It wasn't, about, like, I'm gonna, wasn't like I'm going to make like an actual artwork that's going to go in a gallery and sell and I'm going to make an actual like monetary career from this. It's like, I just want to go and walk somewhere in nature. And You're get an explorer. Paid. Yeah, yeah You're an explorer. Basically, you know, it's really funny them. because when you talked about the monoliths and stones, there is something about when you're in nature like that, like even chalk cliffs that we have here. But uh, again, yeah. like the national parks, like I've never been to the Lake District and I really, really want to go to the Lake District. We should go, Russ, because it looks so beautiful. And there's something about those huge like rock formations that that you just, uh, I think it's because they've existed for so much longer than us. Well, they're mysterious. It sort of well. makes like, you feel tiny, like yeah. a, like we're just a grain of sand within this huge thing. And all of our like emotional, or especially me, <laughs> like the dramas in my mind, um, you know, just get just get minimized because there's something about recharging, slowing down, like like stopping still and realizing there's this epic landscape around you. I think it's the same in the South Downs or the Peak District or wherever. All these kind of places, and it's right on our. Yeah, but it's right. Where on was our the holiday doorstep. set? Where was the holiday set? The movie. Oh, I'm not sure. I've always wanted to go there as well, and I've never been there, and it's like meant to be amazing. Pilgrim's Way. I've walked quite a lot of the Pilgrim's Way. That's really beautiful. I made a. Actually, a lot of that's in Kent. It's like the London to Canterbury journey, isn't it? Well, technically, I think it's isn't it Windsor. It, yeah, but there's a track that goes. It's the the original Pilgrim's Trail that would have gone from London to Canterbury to the cathedral. And they would get a, a little pin badge at the yes, end, which yes. was a saint. Yeah. And then when they would come back into London, they would throw it in the Thames for yeah, good luck. Yeah. And there were these little saint pins yeah. from these pilgrims going back and forth. Yeah. They've been washed up by and all the mudlarkers are getting them. I mean, you, I think you're a mudlarker at heart, surely. I'm a mudlarker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, there's different, I think the Thames, there's definitely different areas for different things you want. So I noticed that there's a lot of mudlarkers that go to a specific bit of the Thames because they know that's where the premium stuff is. Whereas I was always kind of going for where there's a section where there would have been a bovine, like a, a, 
basically a slaughtery like across the river so you get like loads of bones washed up in the reverse and also near Wapping I used to find a lot of red glass that was a nice bit mm. I, I used to walk mm. to when I was rehearsing at the National Theatre I'd walk along the Thames and there'd be a bit of the beach by the Tate and you'd go down there and there'd be loads and loads of terracotta oh, that yeah, had all been yeah. worn by the, the river yeah. and I'd collect that and then I'd put it in top of plant pots and stuff so it looked like kind of a neat kind of terracotta <laughs> sort of thing display but I, and I had pockets full of terracotta and I'd just turn up at rehearsals which is like bits of old red shit in my pockets that old time. <laughs> so you Russell <laughs> I love it I bet there's probably like some historian just behind you being like fucker he's just taken that bit and so oh, I was trying to find that it's got, exactly. oh my god that's it's I love the fact there's no, different patches on the mudlarkers they must get it, really like the rivals I guess it makes sense because I think isn't it anything that's near the Tower of London you have to it's owned by the crown i'm sure you have to declare it there's like a section of the thames where basically anything you find you have to declare but you know also um i made like i've done quite a lot of metal casting um because i love metal casting i would yeah well i saw saw you did pewter like inside of a duck yeah pewter egg with uh, for sacred thing um initiative actually barney page amazing barney page he approached me about doing that but i did brass casting I love brass casting I mean brass is like home fixtures isn't it it's like I love bronze is like sculpture you know it's like mm, sculptures yeah. on a plinth there's something about Fine brass art, that yeah. feels like it's, in your nan's house, it's a handle it? it's yeah. like yeah there's something I love about <laughs> it so I cast these me and Jack did like this walk that was a bit of the North Downs way and the Pilgrim's way and there's a bit where the Pilgrim's way kind of the track goes in through chalk and where it's been eroded down and down and it was around the time that there was those of hazel trees loads of plum trees so as we were walking along we were like picking these hazelnuts and eating the hazelnuts and chucking away the shells and eating the damsons and I was like Jack like do you feel like is all this stuff self-seeded from pilgrims like all these fruit trees and all these like nut trees like people must be literally just throwing them and they're just planting themselves like so I kept some of the hazelnut shells and I kept some of the damson stones and cast them in brass um Actually, it was for my show at Sunday Painter in 2015, my first London solo show that had those in it, really tiny pieces of leather. But there's something I really loved and about it. They were all that over idea. the floor, weren't they? You yeah, yeah. Them. Yeah, I saw yeah. that. But I really I... loved that idea of that kind of self seeding and that walking and being yeah. part of this, you know, well, you chuck cyclical. away like a, yeah, you chuck away an apple core you've eaten. And like, you know, how many years later, it's maybe an apple tree. Exactly. Well, that's your work. Yeah, People chuck away it? something yeah. off the edge of a. Of a, of a boat or a pier and it Ooh. ends up in your work you yeah, know that, yeah. that's the that's cyclical true. effect of it and I love I love that about your work and I also Although, love go on I was just gonna say I really hope people aren't like just drinking a bottle of water and chucking the plastic lid behind their shoulder and being like oh that's for Hannah Lee's I won't bother putting in the bin. I'll just chuck it on the bin. Hannah, I'll have that in a couple yeah. of years. Don't yeah. come to Margate and litter, thinking I'm going to be there clearing up after This is for Hannah. This yeah. is for Hannah. Yeah, I'm not your litter oh, picker. Well, I just before we get on to our final questions, I just want to talk to you about the titles of your shows, um, which I find beautiful. There was a, a 2017 solo you had called The Turning of Existence into Its Opposite, which I find Uh, very inspiring and very apt for your work and the cyclical effect and the lineage that you're talking about of history. Titles are important to you, right? Yeah, for sure. I think it's funny because that one, the turning of existence into its opposite, it's nothing, isn't it? It's literally nothing. The opposite of existence existence is nothing, yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, So I always kind of liked that, that it was like a, a nothingness. But yeah, I guess... Titles like a lot of them are just like stuff I read where there's something that just stands out to me, like it's just a few words or it's like a, a term like that. Sometimes people ask me and I go, oh shit, I'm going to have to Google it because I've actually forgotten where it came from. But I've got a notes thing on my phone, which is just lots of titles, basically. It's actually a lot of the way, like a lot of the writing that I've done. I'm very interested in uncreative writing, which is champion. Uncreative. By yeah. So this guy, Kenneth Goldsmith. Um, he wrote this book called Uncreative Writing and he used to, I don't know if he still does, he runs a course on it. It's basically a kind of more postmodernist approach to writing the, the same way with artists. So you're not creating new language, you're just taking what already exists. He did, there's an amazing YouTube video actually, which he did at the White House. It was when Barack Obama obviously was yeah, in power and Barack's in the audience and he does this um, reading, I think of a Walt Whitman poem about Brooklyn Bridge it's really amazing and then he does a piece of his own writing 
that's a transcript of a traffic report about the traffic on Brooklyn Bridge. It's amazing the way he reads it. It's just, it's kind of humorous because, you know, it's ridiculous and it's a bit silly, but it's also amazing because you're like, oh yeah, it's, it's kind of quite intriguing. But this whole book really inspired me. I always really loved English literature, but I was terrible at creative writing. But that's taking something that already exists and then giving it a new life, yeah, a new exactly. spin. Which is, change, change yeah. the context, yeah. Which is exactly yeah, what yeah, yeah. your work is doing. Yeah, the which is probably why you connect to that. That's so yeah, fascinating. The writing that I do is very like is very connected to that. It's basically about kind of collaging. And it's more like collaging with words, I guess, or phrases. Um, and a lot of the, the performances I've done, the scripts are um, kind of removal of context. So I've done quite a few with Star Wars scripts where anything that kind of references characters or obvious things about it being Star Wars is removed. So it becomes more about just the in, just human interactions, just about emotions, about people people's interactions. So there's no dialogue. There's no description of what those people are. There's no way you could identify it specifically as Star Wars. I was just interested in when you reduce it down, it being just about interactions. You know, like, he looks down, she turns away. It's very just like almost that. I love it. This has just been amazing. You're the best. So if you could do an art heist, and there's two folds to this, two prongs to this. You could do an art heist, you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? And if you could discover or find anything on your rambling walks across nature that you think that is gold, I want that, and that's going to like go into an artwork, <laughs> what would it be and why? Um, I've been thinking about the art heist quite a lot. It's quite a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think mm. it's quite hard because you either go, either you really want like the kind of National Gallery style work that you're just like, oh my God, that's amazing, I want to exist with that. Or it's like, I want the kind of British Museum artefact. So I feel like whistle jacket, stubs. I'm a big, I mean, I think I think it made me, I still, I think of myself as a sculptor or, or like, I mean, you know, mixed media, but I think in three dimensions. And I feel like stubs whistle jacket is that weird thing between it being, I just don't feel like it's a painting. I feel like it's a photograph of a sculpture in a way. It's got this weird depth to it. And the other one, which is kind of similar, is Caravaggio's Basket of Fruit. It's like, mm. I think it's the first still life, but I went to go and see this in, I think it's in Milan. And the background, which you can't really see in reproductions, is painted on top. So it's like a foreground, but it's like pearlescent or glittery. So it looks like the basket of fruit is like sinking into like glittery snow or something. And the way it's lit is like a, it's like a disco ball. It's like the tackiest thing I've ever seen. But it just really <laughs> blew my mind because I'd seen reproductions. And they're like, this is, well, this is not, this is not what I thought at all. And then the other thing is, I have to know, like maybe I just want the, the Venus of Wildendorf. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Just have it. Yeah. Just like have quite small as well. No. You can have oh, it. Oh, you can just where have is it. it. Where is it? Is that in British Museum? Well, Phil Bader should know that. I love the fact that you described Caravaggio's work as tacky. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the weirdest thing is the room is so grand as well. It's like this wood panelled room, like a massive library, and there's like the Da Vinci um, drawings in these glass, massive bulletproof glass tombs. They're like lining it and like going down. You're like, oh my god, this is so grand. You get to the end, big curved wall, all these lights, and you're like, wow, that's like mad. I didn't expect it to be like glittery and just like sparkly and weirdly just like why is he why did he paint the white pearlescent over it you just hate the background he's like i'm gonna paint that over go over that but actually the, the basket of fruit's okay i'll leave that one i'd love to actually i've never really looked at it i bet there's some academic i want to go and see it. that now what it's is your and um, what's your archaeological treasure? oh yeah god the thing that i'd like to find <sighs> what would i like to dig up maybe yeah maybe another like venus of Vild- maybe i'd like to dig up a venus of wildendorf maybe i'd like to find like some weird fertility lump so brilliant i'll steal the caravaggio and i'll find mm. a venus of wildendorf did you pick up that. all the glass that that woman drops when your dad offended her did you <laughs> keep it? <laughs> no i was like i was six oh. i was just like i was just was like what is going on i think i might have picked up oh. some sea glass that day as well yeah my exactly dad, my dad probably went you know it's not crystals yeah yeah. Crush I, I, your I think, dreams too. I, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> I think us three should actually go on a trip somewhere. I would be so that. much fun to do like a proper walk yes. in like a national park. Yes. Like, actually, like just chat all about art and then f- like try and actively find things. It would be hilarious. I would love it. Yeah. Where could we go? 
We could go to like. Uh, have you been to the Lake District or the Peak District? I did oh, Exmoor. That oh yeah, I did. I did Dartmoor I, and Exmoor. Yeah. I filmed Sherlock in Exmoor. We had oh, two course, weeks of night yes. shoots, and it was. Did you? I went completely mad because you I do bet. a night shoot. You get you get picked up at eight pm at night. You turn up to work, and they would be giving you breakfast cereal and fried breakfast, <laughs> and then you'd film. And what your, was that for, Sherlock? Sherlock, yeah. Oh, I, I see. Because they like, needed like yeah, epic kind was, of um, views and scenes and stuff. And then we'd have two. Then we go back to the hotel at like seven in the morning, eight in the morning, there'd be kids in the pool and then you'd go to bed and you tr- <laughs> there weren't blackout blinds. And then as much as you put on the door, do not disturb, you'd always have not, hello, do you want house cleaning? Yeah. You're like, no. And yeah. I, after two weeks, I was like, I'm going mad. I'm actually going mad. This is just insane. <laughs> but I would like to go back there with you, Hannah, and you, Robert, and explore it. So where now, are we going? We're going to Exmoor, Exmoor. or Dartmoor? Both, right? <laughs> I remember going with my mum um, to the Yorkshire Dales, and that's really epic. Like, it's got a very specific energy. Yeah, Yorkshire. Yorkshire's intense, isn't it? I think we drove yeah. through somewhere on the way, when we were coming back from Dundee, we went through Yorkshire, and it was really like, you know when the trees are like horizontal, it's like wind-battered, and you see mm. a house and you go, oh, wow, that looks literally like Bronte sisters. Vibe. <laughs> like it's and is that Heathcliff? Yeah, that yeah. That yeah. Because like I always I remember going there and singing Wuthering Heights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, look, we're going to do that. I would love to do that. Mm. That's really fun. Um, the other question we ask every guest is, "What is your favourite colour?" Oh God, um, I think I'm a weird place between blue and purple. I feel like maybe it's mm. indigo. I always think quite a lot about mm. you know the blue ink you got in fountain pens at school. Mm, you know, I've been thinking about that that blue fountain pen ink, but maybe somewhere between blue and purple. Even oh, though nice. I literally dress in a uniform of black, I'd um, yeah, I'd say maybe yeah, maybe indigo. Okay, and what is the best advice you've ever had when it comes to your art? Actually, it's funny when I did this talk um, at University of Hertfordshire a few weeks ago. I was pointing out to them that you know you kind of have to be a little bit delusional to keep doing what you're doing you know because when you get so many knockbacks and you're not making any money and no one cares what you're doing the idea to keep going is just like ridiculous isn't it it's like why wouldn't you just stop and do something else so I think you have to be a bit delusional and do you know about this um narcissistic trait in creative people so I mean you know obviously narcissism has a bad like bad vibe but supposedly there's a certain narcissistic trait that all creative people have which is why you feel like someone might be interested in what you're doing because some people mm. don't. Some people don't think that. I mean, I honestly go, yeah, someone's going to really, really like a bunch of stuff that I would frown from a beach and just shoved in some plaster that's and me. put it on a wall that's and they're going to love it. That's me, a fellow narcissist then. <laughs> yeah. That's me. Hello, I want it. Well, I'll all, take well, it. All three of us clearly have this tiny little narcissistic trait that makes it's us true. feel like we we are doing something of interest or that is important to someone or will be interesting to someone. That is really fascinating. Yeah, like, you know, you've got to have a slight element of narcissism. Hannah. That's so funny. I love, I love that. The way Russ, <laughs> Russ, you were like, you were like, no, I've never heard of this. <laughs> well, like you're an actor. <laughs> no, of course. There, there, there is definitely a narcissistic trait to creativity and the fact that when if you're making art that you, or any art that you want Even writing a to song see, or doing anything. Yeah, you want people to see yeah. it. It's, so the difference, it's the difference between, I guess, a creative and a consumer. Like some people, Precisely, some yeah. people don't have a desire to make things. I mean, even the people that make yard art or make stuff in their shed, there must still be mm. this very tiny narcissistic trait in their personality that gives them a well, desire. Well, it's also, it's, it's a bit, if you think about narcissism on a really basic level, like looking in the water or whatever, um, like from Roman myths or whatever it is, there is a bit of that. Because if you're going to sit down and write a play or you're going to sit down and write a song or make an artwork, you're, you're reflecting by yourself aren't you i mean there's a lot of navel like, gazing let's let's face yeah. it there's a lot of and thinking and, and solitude dwelling in your own thoughts a lot yeah yeah some people think... make art not to be seen some people just are creative and they like when you yeah, find no, like all this art is, henry is he... darger for example like fat made all this art and he made it for himself and he the, the, the narcissism of wanting other people to discover it or see it didn't exist he did it all for himself but I don't think it's necessarily wanting, having a desire. It's, it's thinking that think. you have a desire to do it. Because narcissism has like this idea that you're a narcissistic person, you're obsessed with yourself. There's, you know, lots of toxic narcissism. But actually, and this very like tiny amount of narcissism is just the drive that you have to create, to make something because mm. you have that desire to do it. That there's not like this mm. thing in you going like, no, don't do that. It's stupid. Just like 
do something else do something productive put the laundry on oh like no i'm gonna i'm gonna write this thing down if i want to or i'm gonna take a picture yeah. of that hannah are you on instagram uh yes at hannah j lees i think someone stole Amazing. hannah lees so i'd have to put the j in there hannah j mm. is chic and <laughs> you've got a website as well haven't you yeah it's just hannahlees.com yeah, and you can learn more there. And you've got an exhibition coming up. Oh, in Brighton. Hotel, uh, Hotel Michelle. Oh, yeah. Well, Brighton's, uh, that's a, a bit of a long way. That's a collaboration with another artist called May Hands. Um, that's an ongoing thing. But I do currently have a show with Roland Ross, who's also a part-time Margate resident. And it's actually Heather Green. Lewisham's like the new the new art centre of London. You've got Goldsmith CCA. You've got Shira High in Deptford. Collective Ending. You know, now you've got Roland Ross. Dreaming. Well, the yeah. productive thing I'm going to do is that uh, after this discussion, I want to go out more and get into nature and recharge in nature. I, I want to. I want to recharge in nature with Hannah Lee's, and we can Hell chat yeah. about all these topics. Yeah, yes, I'm absolutely. down with that. You're a very good companion for walking. Oh. No wonder Jack. I want to go on the beach so with you and find bits and then point them out to you, so oh, I'm not picking that. them up and giving them to you. But I can just go. By the way, there's something there you can. Oh yeah, yeah. Be, I just, I just like time that. Go. I actually legitimately think we should go to a national park because I've never, I really haven't done it and it's right on our doorstep. We can go in my I3. Everyone listening, well, national parks are the perfect place to recharge in nature and it's never been easier with the electric vehicle thanks to an increasing enhancement of the EV charging network across all 15 national parks. They will be appearing over the next three years. And that's if you want to switch off from life, you want to reconnect with the outdoors, or be inspired to create like our wonderful, amazing, I was going to say narcissistic guest. <laughs> but I'm not going to say that. A wonderful guest. A wonderful narcissist. <laughs> oh my God, I can see a new book coming on, Hannah. It's like, you're going to write a book like The, the Positive yeah, Narcissism. Positive narcissism. I bet there will yeah. be, actually. I bet someone that's probably right. will do that. How yeah. to, how to, if you like, want to do, you want do that. <laughs> well you've well, been anyway, a wonderful if guest if you want to be wonderful yeah. like Hannah yes Thank get you. out to the national parks they're the perfect place to do it yeah. discover more about recharging in nature and the recharging nature project at bmw.co.uk forward slash national parks and a huge thank you a huge thank, thank you, you thank to you. Hannah thank Lee's. you're a legend Hannah thank you. And, to, and thanks to BMW and, to and thanks for everyone, everyone listening. listening we'll see you next time thanks Hannah bye 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.